It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories in the coming week from our Daybreak anchors all around the world. And straight ahead on the program... A big week ahead on Wall Street, a Fed decision and a jobs report. Also out, earnings from Apple. I'm Tom Busby in New York. I'm Kaylee Lines in Washington, where the House finally has a new speaker, Mike Johnson of Louisiana. I'm Stephen Carroll in London, where the economic data is gloomy, but that could be welcome news for the Bank of England's upcoming meeting. I'm Doug Krisner. China Evergrande faces a critical day in court. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, the business news you need to wrap up your week in just one 15-minute podcast. Available on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good day to you. I'm Tom Busby. We begin today's program with a focus on the economy. And this week, not only do we get an interest rate decision by the Federal Reserve policymakers, but we'll cap the week with a jobs report for the month of October. And to help us break it all down, we welcome Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent Michael McKee. Welcome, Michael. Thanks. Great to be here. Now, let's start with that two-day meeting by the Federal Open Market Committee after another pause in interest rate hikes at the Fed's last meeting in September. What are we expecting to see this week? Another pause. <laughs> the uh, The Fed has pretty much made it clear, and Jay Powell last week, uh, talking with Bloomberg's David Weston, kind of emphasized the idea that the Fed can, at this point, wait and see what's going to happen because market rates have gone up so much in recent weeks that they're doing part of the job for the Fed. And so if the Fed is worried about inflation going back up again, which they aren't particularly, but you never know these days, then the market rates uh, will help uh, put pressure on the economy and inflation and slow things down more. And also because you have the market rates this high and it slows down the economy, they don't want to pile on and make things worse and send us into recession. So they're going to watch and wait. There's no new economic forecasts and no new dot plot. So it's really only the decision and then what the chairman says in his news conference afterwards. And nobody's really expecting either thing to make a lot of news because Powell's going to want to say we're going to watch the data as they have. So then the focus will turn to the December meeting. But for right now, uh, the Fed is probably going to be one of the lesser influences on the markets uh, next week, which is unusual. But there is a big influence on the markets coming up that very same day, that morning. Why don't you tell us what's going on with the Treasury refunding? Yeah, the the Fed figures into that a little bit. Every quarter, the Treasury announces how much it anticipates borrowing for the next three months. And of course, with the deficit where it is now, the Treasury is forecast to announce it will need to borrow a trillion dollars in three months. That's a lot 
<laughs> and so the uh, the the estimate is that uh, we're going to see a lot of volatility in the Treasury market, depending on how they lay this out, which tenor, uh, you know, what maturities, uh, three-year, five-year, seven-year, ten-year, are they going to spread this out over, how much of it will be in Treasury bills, how much of it will be in bonds. And so the question for the market is, who's going to buy all this, and therefore then at what price? And the Fed figures into it because, of course, they've been raising interest rates, and that adds to the amount of interest the government has to pay, which adds to the deficit. And it also uh, raises the question of how much are market participants going to have to uh, pay uh, to to buy these bonds because um, the Fed has raised rates and you're not going to buy uh, treasuries at a at a lower price than uh, what the Fed has uh, already put out there. So it's going to be a very interesting dynamic on Wednesday morning, and uh, basically the outlook seems to be look for volatility. And uh, volatility not only in in the treasury market but in stocks. It's it's going to impa- impact a lot. It could impact stocks as well, uh, given where things settle out. Um, and obviously, we get close to the day. We'll see what, when issued prices are going to be. But it, it's beginning to look like um, this is going to be one of the bigger uh, refunding announcements that we've had in decades. Wow. Will we get more good news this coming Friday from the October jobs report? That's a biggie. Yeah, it seems that the markets have given up on the idea that we're going to see a major change in payrolls. Uh, The forecast is for 185,000 at this point, which would uh, be fairly strong. And it's higher than the forecast in previous months that turned out to be wrong because uh, job growth was so strong. So the market seemed to throw in the towel and said, we'll probably get a pretty good good number. Uh, The Fed has been looking for something around 100. Thousand and 185 would would not be anywhere close. No change in the unemployment rate is expected. 3.8 percent, uh, which is also not what the Fed expected. They thought we would get easily into the middle of the fours, the five range. Uh, they've since dialed that back to down to 4.1 percent, but 3.8 is not 4.1. And at the same time, the forecasts are that we see average hourly earnings on a on an annual basis continue to drop a little bit. So it's it's like all good. Um, there. Now, Tom, you have just jinxed the U.S. economy because <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> we, we said things are all good. There has to be something, some bad again. news oh. yeah, out there. Well, there is a lot to look forward to, Michael. Thank you. Our thanks to Bloomberg International Economics and Policy Correspondent, Michael McKee. We now go from the economy to the ongoing corporate earnings season, which continues in earnest. More than 160 companies in the S&P 500 reporting in the week ahead. And at the top of that list is Apple, the most valuable company on the planet, worth a staggering $2.63 trillion. And for more... We're going to bring in Anurag Rana. He's senior tech analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, the Apple shares, they've really took off this year, up 30%. Just put out the new iPhone 15 line a month ago. It's got another new product launch on Tuesday, earnings Thursday. About those earnings, what do you expect? You know, from a mathematical point of view, it is not the most exciting quarter in the for Apple, just because it's right before 
the holiday season, which is the biggest quarter for the year. Um, but, you know, we do have some early indications of, uh, or we hope to hear about the early indications of the brand new iPhone 15 launch and how it's doing. So I think it's going, the conference call is going to be far more exciting in our view than the numbers itself. And as far as those numbers, what are you expecting to see? Relatively modest growth, uh, frankly, because this is an area um, in constant currency. There could be some headwinds because of FX. But other than that, you know, you're going to look at nothing so exciting. Services revenue, which is, you know, the one that is the higher growth area, could be around the 8 to 10% mark. Um, iPhone's pretty flat. Nothing so exciting about that. Um, so, I mean, overall, I'm not really um, uh, baking in a big surprise. Uh, but the comments about the iPhone and more importantly, how is it doing in China? Everything related to the China iPhone is going to dictate how Apple essentially grows and trades over the next 12 months. And now, how is the iPhone, especially the, the lineup of the new 15s, how is it doing in China and the rest of the world? I think this is the, you know, we got some early indications that it's not doing so well in China, but that was just like the first 15 days or 17 days. Um, there's some industry reports. You know, in our view, it should do better in China only because there is an easier comparison to last year. So the Apple story is a little bit more simpler in when it comes to the iPhone than most people think about it, because the way I look at it is there are, is a massive base of iPhones around the world. Let's let's call it 800 and you know somewhere around 840 million iPhones around the world. The average refresh cycle or average refresh rate for a human being is about four years. So at any given year, they're going to sell let's say about 220 million units. In good years, they will sell a little bit more. In bad years, they will sell a little less. Last year, we saw a little bit less because of some supply chain problems we faced in China because of COVID, uh, you know, breakout over there. Mm -hmm. So from that point of time, I mean, that comparison becomes a little bit easier in fourth quarter. But then there is some, you know, additional drama going on in China with um you know, launch of a new phone, potential nationalism, potential government restrictions. I mean, there's a there's there's a, a lot of noise around that topic. So when Apple comes out and gives us a clear indication of what's happening in China, I think it's going to be um, either good for the stock or bad for the stock. Okay. And Anurag, very quickly, Tuesday, we're expecting a new product launch. What do you expect to see from Apple? That's a very, I mean, I would say in a, in a very normal way, that is the next upgrade for uh, the for the Macs. And I think the real, um, you know, fun part over there is they have their own chip. And because of the design chip by them, uh, the Macs have done really well. I think they've been taking market share away um, from P the generic PCs or the high-end PCs for some time. And uh, the performance of these machines are truly remarkable. And I think I would attribute a lot to that with the, not just the design of these products, but the chip that they have, uh, you know, built in-house. Wow. Well, there's a lot going on, a lot to look forward to. Anurag Rana, Senior Tech Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to be here. Coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, lawmakers finally elect a new Speaker of the House. We'll look at who Mike Johnson is and what challenges he faces going forward. I'm Tom Busby. This is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. Up later in our program, we preview another key rate decision, this one from the Bank of England. But first, after weeks of infighting and jockeying for votes, lawmakers finally elected Republican Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana as the 56th Speaker of the House. For more, let's bring in Bloomberg Sound On co-host Kaylee Lines. That's right, Tom. After three full weeks of paralysis without a House Speaker, someone finally has the gavel in hand. Congressman Mike Johnson of Louisiana. Let's take it back to the House floor this past week when he secured that gavel. The total number of votes cast is 429, of which the Honorable Mike Johnson of the state of Louisiana has received 220 votes. So there you have it. He was elected to the post with 220 votes, accomplishing what Tom Emmer, Jim Jordan, and Steve Scalise could not before him, galvanizing enough support within the Republican conference. But you couldn't be blamed if you're sitting there asking yourself, who is Mike Johnson? So I thought it would be a good idea to get Mike Dorning, who helps lead our congressional coverage here at Bloomberg, to help us answer those questions and others. Mike, good to see you as always. Great to see you. So let's talk about who this guy is. He has been vaulted from essentially being a backbencher to second in line to the presidency. What do we need to know about Speaker Johnson? Well, probably the most important thing to know about him is he's someone who has very strong evangelical Christian beliefs. And he's been, even before he was in elective office, very involved in the legal agenda of the Christian right. He worked with a legal advocacy group um, that uh, pursued conservative cultural causes. And that's been sort of the um, the core of who he was even before he entered politics. And he's going to be the most conservative speaker in modern times on both social and economic issues. And he's a guy importantly, who doesn't have a lot of experience yet in these big negotiations. He's just been, as you said, you know, a very junior member of leadership, was not involved in any of the big negotiations. So he'll be taking on a completely new set of tasks. Yeah, and I want to get to that lack of leadership experience in just a moment. But also when we think about the idea that this is a very staunch conservative, it's also important to note this is someone who's pretty closely aligned with former President Trump and was really one of the leaders of the effort within the House to overturn or not certify the results of the 2020 election. And I wonder, especially for those endangered moderates, in his conference, who are in districts that Biden won in 2020, how much pushback is he likely to get from those individuals because of his position on on Trump in the election? And, And that obviously ties into how hard it will be for him to keep the Republican conference together. Well, they all voted for him, so they embraced him. His positions themselves won't play well in those districts because 
He's above all uh, very conservative on cultural issues like abortion, same-sex marriage, even, you know, he supported criminalization of um, gay sex quite late in his career. Um, and he was one of the leaders of the election denialism in the House, and he has that record. I mean, that said, we don't know how much Democrats will succeed in making him a uh, caricature that, you know, people can rally around in the same way that they did Newt Gingrich or Republicans did Nancy Pelosi. He has a personality and a style that's not as confrontational mm. as Jim Jordan or Newt Gingrich uh, or Donald Trump, for that matter. So even though he has these very sort of out of the mainstream political positions, his persona, what you see on TV, what you hear in his voice is not that sort of combative, confrontational style. Yeah, one member of the Republican conference told me this past week that it's just really hard to dislike Mike Johnson. And ultimately, maybe that's why he was able to secure the votes when so many others could not. But to the point you were making uh, earlier, Mike, about this idea that this is not someone who is is in a position where he has had a lot of experience being a leader, being in the room with people like Mitch McConnell or Chuck Schumer, or ultimately possibly even President Biden, if we're really getting down to having to hammer out a deal on spending to keep the government funded by November, by November 17th, which of course is the deadline when that funding is going to run out. How challenging is it going to be for Mike Johnson to kind of step into that role, to step into these rooms? I mean, it is a big challenge for anyone. I mean, he will have advisors around him and he will have people like Steve Scalise, the majority leader who's has some experience in that. But it's it's a it's very different than just being a member of Congress taking positions on legislation. He's got to, as a negotiator, both be facing some of some very seasoned people in Chuck Schumer, in Mitch McConnell, in Joe Biden, and having to suss out where he can take the Republican conference, which is, you know, very conservative at the moment, and calculate the odds of how much damage it would do to the Republican Party to have a shutdown, have mm -hmm. a face-off, be unwilling to compromise. And those are very different strategic um, calculations than a backbench member of Congress has to make. Yeah. So what do we know about his his plans to, to fund the government to try to figure out something that will appease his conference, but also that the Senate and the White House can sign on to? Well, he's indicated um, in a letter that he sent around to his colleagues shortly before he was elected speaker that he would be willing to do another short-term funding deal to stave off uh, a mid-November shutdown and hopefully at least get into next year. That way there's a little bit more time to come up with a legislation and negotiating position, think things out. What's unclear, though, is whether he would attach some of these conditions that just won't fly with Democrats, like big changes to asylum laws or, mm -hmm. you know, Previously, he voted against the temporary funding, the only temporary funding he was willing to support as a member of Congress was with a 30% cut in funding, which would be a draconian cut. And, you know, 
unlikely for Democrats to agree to, especially for just, you know, to get six more weeks of federal funding. What about the issue of funding for Israel or maybe more difficult Ukraine? Now, that's a he has in the past opposed funding for Ukraine, as as have a significant portion of House Republicans. Um, But he has said that he wouldn't necessarily oppose Ukraine funding. And that is something that most Democrats support and a lot of Republicans support. So there's broad support for Ukraine funding in the House, but there is division within the Republican Party on that. And we don't yet know how he'll navigate that. We do know that, you know, when he was voting for himself, he was voting against it. Yeah. And of course, as we talk about all these legislative efforts that he's going to have to undertake, we know that in politics, it isn't just about what you do on the Hill. It's also about going out and raising money to spend on campaigns so you can stay on the Hill. So what Johnson would want, you can keep the majority. That probably is is more important. What do we know about his record as a fundraiser? Well, he hasn't done a lot of fundraising. He doesn't have a, a large mailing list of um or email list these days of, uh, you know, small dollar donors. And he hasn't raised a ton of big dollar money, although we do know the oil and gas industry has been a big supporter of his. Not surprisingly, he comes from Louisiana, Mm -hmm. which is a big oil and gas country. And he's sort of previously pushed against any climate change action, which kind of fits the oil and gas industry's agenda. He's also raised a bit of money from defense contractors. He's on the Armed Services Committee and authorizing weapon systems is very important to defense contractors. Though he doesn't have that much experience, um, Kevin McCarthy's top fundraiser has already indicated that they're, he's going to work with hmm. um, with the new speaker. So you know, that's someone who really knows how to do this. So on a staff level, um, they've got the connections, and once you're the speaker, uh, it's going to be very easy to get a lot of big business groups to support you. Yeah, certainly has a lot of work cut out for him. Getting the gavel may have been the easy part. Uh, for him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so the hard stuff still to come. Mike Dorning, who helps lead our congressional coverage here at Bloomberg in Washington, thank you very much. And Tom, we'll send it back to you. Our thanks to Bloomberg Sound on co-host Kaylee Lines. And coming up on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to Europe. We preview another key rate decision, this one from the Bank of England. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I'm Tom Busby in New York with your global look ahead at the top stories for investors in the coming week. The Bank of England in focus in the coming days as its rate setters meet. Much of the recent data for the UK has shown the economy weakening a bit. And policymakers have pointed to the fact that the effect of the past 14 hikes 
still feeding through. For more now, let's go to London and bring in Bloomberg Daybreak Europe anchor Stephen Carroll. Tom, the backdrop to this Bank of England meeting is looking decidedly gloomy. The UK economy is starting to creak under the strain of higher interest rates. The Bank of England paused its hiking cycle at its last meeting in September. Since then, flash PMIs have shown a continuing contraction in the services and manufacturing sectors. Business optimism is in short supply and the labour market is showing signs of weakness too. I've been discussing the prospects for this upcoming meeting with our senior UK economist, Dan Hansen. I started by asking him to put the recent data in context for us. Is this a gradual slowdown or something a bit more dramatic? I think it's still probably a gradual slowdown, but I think context is important because we've been in a world in the UK where we've had zero growth, a little bit of growth. So we've been sort of on the verge of... of, um, GDP falling for a number of quarters now and it it sort of hasn't it wouldn't have taken much at any point to get a drop in GDP and I think now we're we're in the world where GDP probably is more likely falling than it is rising Um, but in the broader context it is very it's very modest the falls we're talking about you know 0.1 or 0.2 percent fall so we're not in a in a sort of headed for a deep recession world we don't think but we do think that it's more likely than not the economy is probably contracting at the moment and i think the pmi number you're you you point to is is an important one i also think if you look at the gdp data as well actually it looks unlikely that the economy grew in the third quarter so we could get a contraction in the third quarter which is a little bit earlier than we'd been expecting and actually a lot lower than what the bank of england was expecting back in its august forecast which is the last forecast it put together so if we have, if it looks like we're heading for a contraction in the third quarter, does that mean the likelihood of a recession is is that much higher by the end of the year? I think, yeah, I mean, I think it does. I mean, again, I, I just be very um, cautious about, you know, the word recession, it, it's obviously a, a word that people associate with very, very bad outcomes. I mean, I'm not, what I'm saying here is that I think we're, we're headed for a mild recession, particularly relative to historical standards um and it's you know it's not i don't think it's going to feel that much different to what the economy the way the economy has been performing um over the past 12 months or so where we've had as i say zero growth maybe a point one or a point two here or there so it's it's a very mild recession we think we're heading for but on the very narrow definition of two consecutive quarters of negative growth we think it's more likely than not we're going to get that by the end of this year is this essentially what the Bank of England was aiming for? Are they then achieving their goals by by having this sort of landing for the economy? Yeah, I mean, I think on this one, you you have to you have to think of the broader view, the broader context around the UK economy. So, the economy's trend rate of growth is probably one 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 and a bit a year, one percent a year. So that means a quarter you get 03 ish a quarter. So it doesn't take much for what and that that then that then means that the the bank of england needs to slow the economy so that it grows slower than that so that the the heat gets taken out of the economy so i think yes you this is what the bank of england is aiming for but in terms of the landing spot between slowing the economy below that 0.3% level and going into recession there's quite a small landing spot for that so i think you know they are this is what they're looking to do this is the the only way they have through interest rates to bring the, econ- the economy back into balance and eventually inflation back to 2%. It's a question too about the the lag in the 
interest rates we've had up until this point, the interest rate rises. Uh, one of the members of the Monetary Policy Committee, Swati Dengra, recently giving an interview in which she said only uh, up to about a quarter of the impact of rate hikes had fed through into the economy so far. What's your analysis of the impact of the rate rises on the economy up, up until now? Yeah, so I, I mean, that slightly worried me, to be honest, that she thought that, because that feels like obviously there's an awful lot still to come and we're we're sort of on on the verge of recession now so if if that's true then you know there's quite it's quite possible we get something a little bit deeper um over the next 12 months or so in terms of the fall in gdp i mean we're we're a little bit more i guess you you would call it optimistic if you like that more of it has come through and i think our view chimes a little bit more with hugh pills he said about half has come through he thinks Hugh pills the chief economist at the bank of england um, and we're we're sort of broadly in, along those lines as well in terms of underpinning our forecast. That's how much has come through um, to date. So there's still fifty percent of it to come through, but it's more than the twenty five percent than Dingra thinks. All of this seems to be pointing to the Bank of England being at the end or very close to the end of its hiking cycle. Do you think we're there? Yeah, I think I think we are. I mean, if you if you think of the data in the run up to the September decision, where if you remember they they decided to pause, um, the data we've had since then is no more worrying, and the bank is clearly very data dependent. Um, uh, and I think you know there we've spoken about the economy, inflation too. It, it surprised relative to the consensus view, but you have to remember it's coming below the Bank of England's forecast, it's it's August forecast. And also Bailey, Andrew Bailey, the governor came out and said that core inflation was a little bit weaker than they had been expecting as well. So that was a, a sort of a nuance as well there. And, and the other thing, the, the big thing I think that's happened is that there are finally some signs that pay growth is turning over. So that was the one metric that was continuing to rise um and going into the september decision as well which is the big reason why we thought they would hike and they they decided not to but actually that's just turned over as well so i think if you look at the data as a whole the whole the whole across the the spectrum i don't think there's there's good reason for them to hike in november at all yeah because we had that update on the labor market in the past few days and that sort of painted a picture of things cooling down a little bit but not perhaps indicating major job losses. And that sort of speaks to what you were talking about earlier, that you know the, the recession may come in technical terms, but won't feel that much different. What's the, the outlook for the labour market? Yeah, so I think, I mean, up to now, the labour market outcome in the UK has been, certainly on the unemployment side, and I know there are a lot of questions about the unemployment data now, given what, what's happened with the, these experimental statistics. Um, but the, the broad picture, if you look at the UK unemployment rate relative to what's been happening, say, in the US, in the euro area, unemployment has risen by more and the labour market appears to have loosened by more than in other countries, though it's not, you know, unemployment rate of 4.2% is still extremely low by historical standards. And it's important to, to make that point. The other good bit of news is that you know, the labour market has been loosening on a lot of other metrics that are sort of, if you like, less damaging to to the, for the outlook. So vacancies have been falling. That's a sign that the economy's, um, sorry, the labour market is loosening. So I think the bank will look at it and going back to sort of what we were talking about earlier and what their sort of desired outcome for all of this is that so far, at least, it hasn't probably been as 
damaging as they might have thought had they if you had you told them a year ago they'd have to take rates to 5.25 percent they'd have been extremely worried about the outcome where we stand now yes we might be sort of on the verge of this technical mild technical recession but actually the economy's held up pretty well given the amount of um tightening that's been put in place what about the prospect of rate cuts then how far away do they look at this point yeah there's there's a balance here between obviously if the economy isn't doing as well and i think that the the, the fact that they paused in september suggests to me that they are going to be quite sensitive to this um going into going into the end of the year and into 2024 of course you still you still have to weigh that against the inflation picture that's our senior uk economist dan hansen and we'll have full coverage of the bank of england's rate decision on bloomberg radio this week I'm Stephen Carroll in London. You can catch us every weekday morning here for Bloomberg Daybreak Europe, beginning at 6am in London and 1am on Wall Street. Tom? Thank you, Stephen. And coming up here on Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, we take you to Asia in what is shaping up to be a critical week for a big property developer there. I'm Tom Busby, and this is Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend, our global look at the top stories for investors in the coming week. I'm Tom Busby in New York. China's embattled property giant Evergrande, the world's most indebted real estate developer, faces a critical court date in the week ahead. Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Doug Krisner has more. Tom Evergrande has become the poster child of China's real estate debt crisis. This company has liabilities totaling about $327 billion. And in the week ahead, a court hearing has been set, and this will determine the future of Evergrande. Let's take a closer look now with Bloomberg's Alice Huang, Bloomberg's China credit reporter. She's also the deputy team leader. Alice, thanks for joining us. I think we have to begin with the fact that Evergrande has been struggling to finalize a restructuring plan. Where are we in that process right now? Thank you for having me. Uh, We can say that we're back to square one, where Evergrande, like you mentioned, does not have a concrete restructuring proposal. So we've had a long back and forth, a long journey since Evergrande defaulted um, in 2021. And fast forward to two years later, the company still does not have a restructuring proposal at hand. Now, it did have one earlier this year after a lengthy negotiation with creditors. Um, Some of the major creditors have already agreed to this plan. However, the company surprised them in September when it canceled a creditor meeting last minute when creditors were supposed to vote on the plan. 
And it also said it would have to revisit the restructuring plan that previously already won these key creditors' support. And another development we've seen is that its founder is now under police control. So all of these developments are bringing back the restructuring progress, like I said, back to square one. So I mentioned the court hearing, and the key issue for the judge in this case is to decide whether Evergrande should be liquidated. That, that seems pretty extreme. Is there any way, at any point, that this process could be avoided, liquidation? Yeah, so the company has already managed to get delays from the judge, uh, from the Hong Kong judge, several times on the basis that you know, it would have meaningful debt negotiation progress. So last time Evergrande was in court, it planned to get the restructuring plan approved by creditors uh, by the next hearing. And now that's, you know, it's really behind that schedule. And like I said, we're back to the beginning where it doesn't even have a decided restructuring proposal. And, you know, winding up hearings have become really popular among frustrated creditors of Chinese developers who have seen little restructuring progress as a way to try to recover losses or at least negotiate with the company. And if the judge gives the company a winding up order, you know, a liquidator can come in, seize and sell its assets to repay its creditors. The fact that it's looking like a thin possibility that Evergrande can ever get its restructuring negotiation done is giving the judge now ample reasons to try to wind up this company. I'm trying to imagine what kind of reaction there would be in markets to liquidation, especially when you consider the case of another very, very troubled property developer, Country Garden. What are analysts saying about the impact of liquidation? Yeah, first of all, like I mentioned, directors and management will lose control. But in reality, the asset seizing process will not be easy. And in terms of market reaction, we don't know about Evergrande per se, but we have seen other developers uh, who have been liquidated and, you know, their bonds were just wiped out um, because the fire sale will mean that creditors will probably have very little in return. Um, so a lot of the bonds from developers who have been liquidated, their bonds are trading at like one cent on the dollar. Um, so one less than 1% of face value, really. Um, and it would be a challenge to both jurisdictions in Hong Kong and China to handle what would be the largest insolvency case in recent years. Alice, thank you so much for being with us. That is Bloomberg's Alice Huang. She is our China credit reporter and deputy team leader. I'm Doug Krisner, and you can join Brian Curtis and myself weekdays here for Daybreak Asia beginning at 6 a.m. in Hong Kong, 6 p.m. on Wall Street. Tom? Our thanks to Bloomberg Daybreak Asia co-host Doug Krisner. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Daybreak Weekend. Join us again Monday morning at 5 a.m. Wall Street time for the latest on markets overseas and the news you need to start your day. I'm Tom Busby. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.